I kind of had a little bit of an aha when I started doing note ranges and I realized the top note of a piano was 4K or 3K in that range and the top note of a violin was 3 or 4K. I'm like, wait a second. The top note of the violin is 4K. That means the preponderance of our harmonic information is below 4K. Yeah. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. This episode is sponsored by Sonarworks, helping you get the most out of your mixes by correcting the sound of the speakers and headphones in your studio so you get your mix right the first time. Are you sick of doing multiple mixes and still you can't get the low end right? How would it feel to have badass bass the first time? Get a 21-day free trial at sonarworks.com. Are you ready to rock the perfect mix? This episode is sponsored by OWC, Other World Computing, which you can find at OWC.com, your trusted source for memory and speed upgrades, DIY installs, and use Macs for your studio. Let OWC focus on keeping your studio Mac in killer condition so that you can focus on making great music. Why ditch your existing Mac when you can take your studio far into the future with OWC? Learn more at OWC.com and learn how you can supercharge your studio Mac. The speed to create, the capacity to dream. Find out how awesome your Mac can be at OWC. Hey, Rockstars, this is Lid Shaw, and welcome back to Recording Studio Rockstars, bringing you into the studio to learn from recording professionals so that you can make your best record ever and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today is Eric Serafin, aka Mixer Man, a gold and platinum award winning record producer and mixer. He's worked with many nationally known acts, including The Far Side, Tone Loke, Ben Harper, Lifehouse, Nine Days, Bare Naked Lady, Amy Grant, and Foreigner, just to name a few. After 20 years based out of Los Angeles, Eric now lives in Asheville, North Carolina, where he produces and mixes records out of several world-class recording facilities located there. Out of several world-class recording facilities located there. Eric is also a published author and has written several books under the pen name of Mixer Man about recording, producing, and mixing. It all began with the daily adventures of Mixer Man chronicling his recording journey in the studio. He then went on to write Zen and the Art of Recording, Producing, and Mixing as three separate books after that, which I highly recommend reading. And now he's come out with his most recent book, presented as a field manual for the studio called Musician's Survival Guide to a Killer Record. I'm honored to have Mixer Man joining us on the podcast today to tell us about his new book and making records in general. Please welcome Eric Serafin to Recording Studio Rockstars. Eric, are you ready to rock? Oh, I'm ready to rock. Dude, it's an absolute honor and a pleasure to have you here on the show. Um, I, like I was saying before we got on the call, I've been a fan of your writing. I've mostly known your writing. Um and ever since I, I read Zen and the Art of Mixing, which, you know, reviewing and prepping for this, I realized that was all the way back in 2010. That's when I wrote it, yeah. Wow. It was a pleasure for me to read that book. It was exciting to even have a book like that <laughs> to read. Um, and then it was really eye-opening. It got me just excited about being in the studio. So 
um, catching up on Musician Survival Guide to a Killer Record. That's a great book, and so I'm excited to you know have you tell us about this. Cool. Yeah, the mixing uh, book I wrote in 2010, and it's kind of funny because sometimes I'll see a comment online. It's kind of old, but still uh, still relevant. And I'm like thinking, yeah, it's going to be still relevant for a really long time because what's going to change? Yeah, I mean. I am going to change the gear section in that book. I, I'm I'm putting it out. I'm going to pull out all of pretty much. I'm going to keep all, all my gear suggestions uh, generic, as in types of gear and stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, I, I don't want to keep doing revisions on that. I think I can do that book where I can let that sit for for quite some time before I need to touch it again. Um, did you recently also do a revision where you added, uh, or maybe it's not at so recent, but um, where you added video clips to go along with the the book as well? Yeah, for all three of them, actually. Um, in 2014, I did a bunch of videos for Zen Recording, Zen Producing, and Zen Mixing. And um, uh, those are come with the uh, Kindle, with the digital versions of the book. Oh, cool. Well, that's, yeah. that's definitely awesome. Um, well, so, you know, Eric, give us a little bit more background on who you are. Uh, you know, I've kind of done my intro, but we'd love to hear in your own words, um, you know, how you got started in recording and how you got to this point. Well, well, that's a long story. <laughs> you can give us a condensed one See, if you want. Yeah. <laughs> Seeing as it all started in the mid-80s. Um, now I've dated myself, but that's all right. Well, I started, you know, I graduated high school in 85, and I went to Rutgers University to study piano with Kenny Barron, who's a... Um, a uh, straight, uh, a very well-known uh, straight-ahead jazz pianist, and I learned very quickly that I wasn't going to be a jazz pianist. And so then I I went off to Berklee College of Music for a couple of years and basically took a I changed my major like four times every semester and took just the classes that I wanted to take. Ultimately, I took a ton of songwriting classes, which turned out to be. Um, more useful for producing than anything else because it allowed me to really understand what went into a great song. And we broke down great songs and rhyme structure and... Um, and uh, This wasn't with Pat Patterson, was it? <clears throat> Pat was one of my teachers. Um, Bob, who I can't remember his last name, um, and John Ulrich was one of the teachers. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, It was a really, really good course. And, you know, most of the stuff that we learned, I kind of knew innately. I shouldn't say most of it, a lot of it. Uh, But, you know, when you're writing songs, you kind of figure this stuff out just by listening, you know. But when you when you get into the class and you start breaking songs down, you, you, you start to be able to to figure out what goes into a great song. Yeah. And so if someone comes to me with a song that has a problem. I can pretty much go through it and figure out where those problems are just from from that training at, at Berkeley. That's pretty awesome. So that proved useful. And then while I was at Berkeley, I was writing a lot of songs, and and I uh, I turned to my roommate, who was my my best friend through high school, and um, I said, I, I need to get in a recording studio and. I started talking to people. I talked to the guy at Daddy's Music, which is where oh, I bought yeah. my synthesizers there. On so I bought my guitar and my four track. Yeah, you went to Berkeley too. No, but I grew up in Boston. Yeah, yeah. So I, I talked to him, and he's like, "Yeah, there's this guy at the studio in Jamaica Plain. It's a you know the 
they did all George Thorogood's records. Why don't you talk to him? He wants to he wants to bring someone in. So I, I talked to him. To make a really, really long story short, I ended up living above that studio and had 24 full access, 24-hour full access to it. Uh, pretty much ran the place. And um basically was able to record whenever I wanted my songs. And then I started to bring bands from Berkeley and say, hey, you know, I can do this super cheap for you, whatever. The owner didn't put any pressure on me to bring in any money or whatever. So I, I just kept practicing and practicing and practicing. And four years later, three or four years later, mm -hmm. I, I actually felt like I was halfway decent and decided that it was time to move to Los Angeles. And so that was 19... 91, I moved to Los Angeles, and uh, within six months of that, I, I had a, a gig at Capitol Studios doing setup for the uh, for the string sessions and for you know for big orchestral movie sessions. Basically, that was a huge uh, learning experience. Uh, got fired from that six months later, rightly so. Uh, it was not the gig for me, but uh, I did take a lot from it. And went to Hollywood Sound, and within six months of working at Hollywood Sound as a freelance assistant slash house engineer, I found myself in the studio with uh, The Far Side, who were being mixed by Joe Primo, who's a friend of mine. And Mike Ross was there, and he was complaining about this studio, Paramount Studios in Los Angeles, and saying that, you know, it's... it's was not happy with the quality of the recordings out of there. And, you know, he was paying 35 bucks an hour, which was really cheap, even in the 90s. And um, Jesse, the owner of Hollywood Sound, had put up this production room. And I said, Mike, ma'am, there's this production room upstairs. We can record them in this thing called a DAW, right? Because mm -hmm. they got this Spectral Sonics DAW up there. And I'm like... And we can we can record their vocals up there, and and Jesse wants to charge thirty five dollars an hour, and so I've been recording for a long, long time now, four years, and uh, you know I've got chops, so why don't you come here? And he's like, yeah. And so the next thing I know, the next day we're recording the Far Side at Hollywood Sound upstairs, and I was on that record for eight months, and that was their first album, Bizarre Ride to the Far Side, which I guess. You know, within a year later, everybody knew about that album, especially mm -hmm. in the hip-hop circles in Los Angeles, and, and that album ultimately went gold. That was my first actual recording in Los Angeles, and it went gold. How's That's that for great. luck? That's a great start. <laughs> I don't think I've seen a gold record in my career yet. I've, I've seen a lot of records I'm proud of and a lot of records that I, that, you know, with great songs on it, but not one that's been gold. Yeah. Well, it's a different time. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, that's pretty exciting. So then um, now you're in Asheville, North Carolina. Um, did you stay out in L.A. all the way until you, you sort of transitioned to Asheville? Or is that um, was, was well, there any other stops in the way? No, no. I, was in, I, I lived in Redondo Beach for 25 years, raised my son there. Um, and in 2015, all the planets kind of – oops, pardon me. All the planets kind of aligned and um, – I had been coming to Asheville for a number of years and producing some of the bigger acts out of here mm -hmm. um, at a studio called Echo Mountain, which is yeah. a great studio. 
It's a beautiful studio, and it's got an Eve 8068, which I'm partial to, and an API, which I'm partial to. And more importantly than that, it's got amazing-sounding rooms. That church sounds just fantastic. And I produced uh, I produced a band out of Raleigh in 08, and I produced a group called the Josh Phillip Folk Festival. And Josh is very well-known around these parts, and that was in 2010. Very proud of that album, and I recorded... The broadcast, produced the broadcast in 2012. And so, you know, I'd made some inroads in this town and I just fell in love with this town. I love artsy towns. Yeah. And my work is just comes from all over the place and a lot of it wasn't coming from LA. And I just felt like I was at a crossroads, either move somewhere and don't worry about it and do what you want. Or get back in the game. And I just didn't get back in the game, meaning go back to recording, because there was so much pop records being done at that point that you pretty much had to hook up with a songwriting producer and just record. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I just didn't want to get into that game. So I decided that uh, I asked my girl, Tanya, if she wanted to move out here, and she, she was ready for that herself. And I asked my son, who was... Mm, 19 at the time, and he was ready for that, and he was ready to go to school, and he wanted to go to school in North Carolina, so we all moved out. That's great. Well, Asheville's a beautiful place, and I mean, uh, it's a nice place when you're outside of the studio, too, you know? Just a oh, I love it, yeah. Beautiful location. Echo Mountain's great. I know Jessica from there. Um, yep. Do you want to give a, a, a further shout-out to Echo Mountain if, for anybody who doesn't know anything about it? Oh, I mean, if you're going to record, if you're going to go out of town and record, this is a great place to do it. There's, it's not just Echo Mountain. There's a bunch of really good studios here. I, I thought I'd only end up working at Echo Mountain, and I end up working all over the place. That's great. So it's, this place is like a music mecca in a way. Nobody can make any money around here. Musicians <laughs> don't, you know. It's just it's terrible in that respect. But, you know, there's a, there are just – we set up a Facebook group for Western North Carolina um, engineers and producers – I think we've got 145 people in this group. Granted, some of them may be musicians, maybe stretching it a little, but we've pretty much tried to keep it to mostly engineer producers. That's a lot of people for a town of just under 100,000. Yeah. Well, I, I've got a buddy here named Chad Brown who's been on the podcast. He thought for some reason you m might have worked with the brand new heavies. Is that correct? Yeah, I did. Uh, I mixed... Um, Brother Sister, the whole album. Oh, cool, cool. Those guys are great. Really I was a good huge album. fan of their record, Heavy, Heavy Rhyme. Mm, yeah, all of their, all, yeah, yeah. That that one they did in between the first one, and I think there's some far side cuts on that Heavy, Heavy Rhyme, too. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, groovy. Well, let's keep jumping forward. So um, tell us about, you know, your newest book, The Musician's Survival Guide to a Killer Record. Give us an introduction to that. What what prompted you to write this book and what should we expect from it? Yeah, well, I uh, I hang out on online audio groups a fair bit. I had one for a while. I, I ran one for a while, of course. And now I just have my little Mixer Mania group, which I'm happy with. And I hang out, I go on all the home recording sites and Slate site and everything. And I just, you know, there's always been a lot of clueless people who record or want to record and ask questions, whatever. That There's nothing really eye-opening about that. But it, I started reading the comments and you'd get this question and you'd get comments and like someone would say, 
I like to duplicate my guitar and pan them hard left and right so that I get a bigger, fatter guitar sound. Right. Okay. Well, you know, as well as I know, that all that's going to do is make the guitar twice as loud and put it in the middle. So it doesn't fatten the guitar at all. Uh, and then other people will put that they flip it out of phase and then they pan them hard left and right without any time differential. And so there's going to be cancellation if any if speakers are too close together or out of phones and whatever. And then so those questions or those comments are, are not revelatory in and of themselves. But then you'd get the comments. Oh, yeah, I do that. Yeah, I do that. Oh, that's how I do it. That's my system. And 100 comments later, I'm just sitting there going, okay, none of you could have actually listened to, done this and listened to it and actually believe this. So what is going on? And I just started to realize that it was really just basically full of musicians nowadays that are trying to record. Mm -hmm. And as you know, recording is a very technical process. And you can spend 15 years practicing your instrument and learning as a kid to become a musician. And then you got to spend another, what, three or four years to learn how to record? And we just don't have time for that. Not if you actually want to have a career as an artist. Mm -hmm. So I realized that there's so much confusion and musicians are, are, are getting answers to questions by, from engineers and other clueless people. And, and they're getting information that's actually, you know, maybe an engineer cares about working at 96K. But at the end of the day, if you're on a five-year-old computer, forget it. Yeah. It's never going to, that 96K is never going to be the reason that your song is not successful. So I think that people do things because they read what engineers do and they think that that's what they have to do for the sonic consequences. And I'm just, the whole point of this book is to say, Listen, even at the, the lowest bit rate and the, even at the lowest common denominator, you are operating the way CDs have been for years, and it's already better than MP3s in sound quality. And if you do the arrangement right, and if you do the performance right, and if you get the song right, the sound will fall into place. Yeah. Okay, and so... Uh, the whole goal of this book is to try and break the technical down to just the most important things. I explain what the different microphones are, dynamic, large diaphragm condenser, small diaphragm condenser. And I explain the strategies that are involved in how you choose those mics, not based on the ideal circumstance, but rather based on whatever your circumstance is. So if you only have a dynamic and a condenser, well, you need to be really creative with how you use those microphones, especially if you get in a situation where you need more than one. Then if you're recording drums, well, you got to strategize as to where to put that condenser and where to put that dynamic. Obviously, that's not an ideal setup for recording drums. And if you're in a, in a room that's not the greatest, then it becomes even more problematic. So basically, it's about, the book is about first understanding what you can do with what you have. If you understand what you can do with what you have, then you can strategize as to the kind of record you make. Mm -hmm. If you go into your record saying, I'm going to make a, 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 a Metallica kind of record, and you're doing it in your spare bedroom, you're going to be disappointed with your results. 
But if you go in and you say, okay, I can't make a Metallica re uh, record, not in my house, I understand this, but I can make something really cool and you adjust it based on what your availability of, of gear is and you be creative with it and you focus on the music, now all of a sudden you're building a record with intent based on what you have and you're able to make a record that you're happy with because you're not operating outside of your expectations. Yeah, well, um, I mean, I think of so many records that I loved that were made on four tracks and, and actually embraced that whole kind of bedroom production long before it was common for everybody to have bedroom production even. Um, yeah. Records like, you know, bands like Ween, for example, um, which which even got fairly popular, you know. I don't remember how how many, you know, if they had any bigger hits, but um, just so, so many records. There have been hit records recorded on every medium there is. Therefore, it's not the medium that creates the hit record. Yeah, so uh, I, th I wonder if it's all right with you, I wonder if we could touch on some of the topics that you write about in the book and um, just give you a chance to riff on it for a second. But also, before we do that, I, I, I forgot I was going to ask you. I'd like to ask guests to share an inspirational quote as we kick off the podcast. And I wonder if there's anything you wanted to share to get us excited about hitting the studio. <laughs> uh, the first quote that I wrote down was, 95% of statistics are made up. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> but no, that's not so inspirational. So... Uh, I don't even know who said this now. The guy who wrote Don Quixote, I can't remember his name. In order to attain the impossible, one must attempt the absurd. Now, I'm really, really big on manifestation. I talk about manifestation certainly in the last two books. Basically, anything that I've set my mind to and decided, okay, I want to do this and I want to accomplish this, I have managed to accomplish so, and I call that manifestation. We, we all call that manifestation. So, um, and I'm a big proponent of it, and I'm a big proponent of affirmations, and what you say is what will happen. And so, be careful what comes out of your mouth. You know, it's okay to say positive things to yourself, because when you say positive things to yourself, then that's where your brain is at. Mm -hmm. So... For me, this is a very, very critical part of the learning process and of the creative process in general, because we all kind of beat ourselves up a little bit and we all go through self-doubt, especially in the early days. And I, I'm here to tell you, self-doubt really never goes away. It's just that over time, um, I've learned how to deal with the self-doubt. And one of them is to just smash it out of existence by not allowing it to come to the surface. Yeah. Um, you know, another thing about the, the, the thought of manifestation that struck me at one point, this idea that if, if you think of it and you decide to do it, there's a really good chance it's going to happen. Um, and, and I think you're, talk, you're not talking about, well, I mean, I guess you could be talking about having a gold record or a hit song, um, but particularly like deciding to write a book, deciding to record a record, deciding to, you know, create music. Uh, however, sometimes it's it's not till later that we remember that, um, you know, be careful what you wish for because that thing will happen. So make sure, you know, I guess it's your, your suggestion of saying positive things instead of negative things, you know, really be that intentional and, about what you choose to do. Yeah, absolutely. And um, 
Oh, I just lost my train of thought. Oh, well, go well, on. Well, uh, you know, I was I was sort of almost discounting um, just deciding to make a hit record, but maybe that's not entirely true. Do you have any thoughts on people that you've worked with where you where you saw them decide that they were going to make a gold record and they made one? Well, the thing is, you have to be in a in a in a position to to manifest. I can't just say, "Well, I'm going to be president of the United States. Go run for president of the United States in 2020 and become it." I might want to go for mayor first, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's some things that you got to work your way up to, and you know, it's very very difficult right now to 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 achieve a gold record. That's not really something that's easily done. It wasn't easily done in in 1991. It's nearly impossible now. Just because of the way things are set up, yeah. So that may change. You know, we're, we're things. The, the, the things are changing. Congress is finally starting to make some changes so that we can all get paid and not be ripped off by these mega corporations that would just as soon see copyright go away. Yeah. Um, well, maybe the you know the old uh, older thought of a, having a gold record isn't really the metric that most musicians should be looking for in the in the near term either, you know. Um, you talked on the in the book about hit songs and w- what it means to have a popular song and, w- and what the relationship of that is to the fidelity of the recording and whether or not it's, you know, considered a, a great recording. Um, can you talk a little bit about that relationship and um, how that's either meaningful or not so meaningful? Yeah, well... You know, around 08, when I started producing more and I started coming to um, to Asheville to produce and uh, I would also record and I would be the engineer as well. And the thing about engineering and producing is at all times one is suffering because they cannot be done simultaneously. They're completely different mindsets. And so I realized that you know, I'd be listening to the band making a take, their first take of the day or whatever, after setup, and and I'm like, man, I just I had this thing sounding great ten minutes ago, and now it sounds like shit. What is going on? And so you start to, you know, as an as someone who engineered for many years, what I start reaching for EQs and compressors and mic pre's and faders and start turning knobs and shit and. I started to realize, you know what? This isn't a this isn't a knob turning thing. This isn't an, uh, this isn't a recording issue. This is a performance issue. Yeah. The band's playing, the drummer's playing the drums harder and therefore stiffer. Um, the band is uh, uh, maybe a couple beats faster than they were when we rehearsed or whatever. You know, it, it could be any number of things, but it's a performance issue. Mm-hmm. It's not. A technical issue. And so it took me a little while, A, to figure it out. Uh, and once figured out, it took me even longer to, 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 like, to change the muscles on that. But, you know, after a while, I started to get this discipline where I'm like, I am not going to touch anything, no matter what. Once yes. I've got my tones, once I've got it good, I am not going to touch anything. I will do everything with the band and deal with it on a performance level. And that was a very successful way of working for me. And now I was not undoing things that were already done. And now I was not concentrating on things that didn't matter. I was working with the band 
and I was working towards the recording and uh, of the performances, okay? Mm-hmm. And so if I get the groove right and if I get the performance right and uh, and if I get everything so that the music is doing everything that it should to me as a listener, and I'm evaluating this as a producer, then at that point, everything's working. And so the sound will follow. If I get the arrangement right and if I think along the lines of frequency, and let's say I've got... Uh, Let's say uh, I get pretty deep in the recording process and I realize I need a little more internal rhythm. A lot of times we'll add a tambourine. But if it's a hard rock track and there's a lot of cymbals and there's a lot of grating guitars, then a tambourine doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense because I've already got a lot of information up there. Yeah. And so if we think along of our arrangement along, not just in, in how things function in the arrangement, but where they fit. In the frequency spectrum, either in note ranges or in, you know, in case of percussion instruments in the frequency range, then we will have a way easier time uh, putting it all together later. It kind of mixes itself. And I realized as a mixer, anytime someone gave me a really well-balanced arrangement, I was able to mix it really easily. And when someone gave me something that was you know, had an organ and a piano and a guitar and drums. Oh, all and in lots stereo. Of all in stereo and all in the upper mid-range. Well, I had to cram stuff into less space than I, I had less space than I, than I needed for, for all of that. And so you got to carve and you got to compress and you got to do all these tricks to try and make it work. But you give me a balanced arrangement, I can have it mixed in, in no time. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. Um, I, you know, the thought that comes to mind when you talk about recording that way, it's it seems it's kind of freeing as an engineer because it it sort of releases you from worrying too much about processing a sound on the way in. Uh, you know, maybe you don't have to reach free cue, maybe you don't have to sweat the compression so much. Set a really good mic at a, at a good um, with good headroom through a good pre, and then you can really just focus on the music, especially with the digital age. Uh, the noise floor is so much less of an issue. You know, if you decide to re- perform more quietly or louder, as long as you got the headroom, uh, you're going to be able to work with that sound later as well. Absolutely. And in fact, the noise floor is no issue. I mean, it's like, try recording on tape, then talk yeah. to me about noise floor. I mean, we had to go th- jump through hoops to deal with the noise floor. A lot of the the, the, the mythology that, we, that you read online today, like people say, oh, you don't want to boost high-end on EQ. Well, there was very good reasons for not wanting to boost high-end on EQ 30 years ago. One, a lot of them distorted. A lot of them had top-end distortion. Two, you would be, bring, be bringing up hiss, especially if you were on playback. So you wanted to get stuff in brighter, and it, we don't have to deal with any of that. First of all, you're not adding distortion when you're using these digital EQs. Mm-hmm. You're not... It's, In fact... Distortion is actually a problem now. Like, I find that I have to add distortion like crazy all the time now because people record with with mic pre's that are models that don't really distort all that much, or it's model distortion, or they 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 work at very conservative levels because they think that they don't want distortion. And I'm here to tell you that distortion is your friend. Yeah, indeed. Um, that is a funny thing because. Um, you know, I think of Chad Blake comes to mind, for example, sure. um, going back to the tape days when they would, in fact, add 
distortion with sans amps and stuff like that, but that was really outside of the box at that point. Well, box. Not only that, they, he would time. also they the Chad and um, who was his partner? Um, uh, Mitchell Froom. Mitchell, yeah, Mitchell Shroom. They they um, they like to hit tape super hard too, and so you're hitting the electronics hard, and so you're getting distortion that way too, and so yeah, those guys they had a. Their sound back then in the in the mid '90s was similar to what the sound is now. Actually, yeah. the way people are producing pop records. Yeah, but now it's so back. common for everybody to you know begin to understand that adding distortion and saturation is part of you know uh, that. And I think it's I think it's like a it's almost like a backlash to the clean recording. And it's maybe it's partly that, and maybe it's also you know. Um, the introduction of the decapitator, yeah, sound toys decapitator. Because once that came in, man, now all of a sudden I could get distortion in the box that was actually good. And you know, once once you could derive everything in the box, oh man, all bets are off. <laughs> Maybe talk about backlash a little bit. You've been in the music business long enough to see it go through all kinds of different um, styles and cycles. Do you feel like backlash is just a normal part of the cycle of record making? I think that that technology drives all production trends. I mean, if you you can just look at it, uh, the Lynn drum machine is responsible pretty much for the early '80s through the through the mid '80s. Well, actually, all the '80s. Um, the MPC sixty. Uh, well, before that, the SP twelve hundred or SP twelve. Those drum or sampling drum machines. The sampling drum machine completely changed the way uh, hip hop was done. Uh, the Far Side brought that to a, a whole other degree. Jay Swift used all samples to put together those those tracks, which was never done before, uh, at least not 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 on a record of note. And so um, then you take a look at. Uh, uh, ADATs. Mm -hmm. ADATs kind of changed like the kind of records that were being made. All of a sudden labels could could take some chances with some stuff because it was cheaper to record. Um, did you have to go down ADAT lane or did you just avoid it? Because you'd already been making records by the time it appeared. ADATs came at the early er, part of my mixing career and I would on occasion have to use ADATs but after the first time I, I kind of just decided I was going to transfer to two inch anytime I mixed off ADATs. Nice. I can think of a few sessions that I did mix off ADATs, but trying to wait for four VCRs to um, yeah, sync up to sync with each other is not conducive to mixing. So uh, as it was, I was used to waiting for two two inch machines to sync up, but that's a lot faster. Yeah. <laughs> Well, well, cool. I, you know, I guess what popped into my mind was how, for me, the ADATS introduction was sort of the beginning of my record-making career. So, mm. you know, as a young guy, it was this opportunity to make records affordably and multi-track and all that. But I know for somebody like yourself who'd already been, you know, making high-quality records, um, it was probably really frustrating. It, 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 I wouldn't say it's frustrating. I just didn't want to like try and mix with them. There were occasions when when ADAT proved uh, useful for me as well. I mean, uh, I didn't always have budgets to be in the studio, and sometimes I was developing my own stuff. So 
for me, you know, the the technology, the prosumer technology was useful as well, even back then. Um, I think it always is to some degree. I don't I don't poo-poo any technology. There's there's times and situations where it gets you out of a jam. So yeah. Well, certainly um, we live in a world of prosumer technologies now. It's it's like a huge gray area between what everybody can have access to and you know what really sounds great. Is it a gray area or is it the same? It's the same. That's why I guess that's what I mean. It's all just I mean, one one big color. Uh, anybody can afford. Well, okay, I shouldn't say. I, I, if we set aside my analog gear, you know, my SSL compressor and my summing boxes, anybody can afford my setup. You know, mm-hmm. so it's not an expensive setup at that at that point. Even my room. Well, that brings us back to uh, the musician survival guide to killer record. Um, which, by the way, I was looking at the title as I was writing it down, and you know, it's this wonderful book that looks like a field manual for how to. You know, at first glance, it looks like a it's a field manual for how to make a killer record, and then I started almost reading between the lines after um, you know you. You talk about how often we kind of screw ourselves up in the recording process by overthinking it and by, you know, thinking that, you know, technically perfect is what we need when we're missing the point and not making the music we should be making. And I wondered if Musician's Survival Guide to a killer record, it's almost like, watch out, killer record is the thing that's going to screw you up. (laughs) (laughs) You're thinking about it deeper than I am. All right, all right, good enough. (laughs) Um, Well, let me jump in with some more questions about it. can you tell us about, you know, the importance of discipline in this studio? I know that was a topic that you you touch on in the book. You know, we don't we don't need the discipline to work. I mean, uh, I don't know anybody that needs discipline to go record. We love to record. The discipline is in not thinking about sound. And it's, you know, we all do it. You put a mic up and the first thing you do is you're thinking about the sound of it and you think and, you know, to some extent that's part of the process. Yeah. But as soon as you're passing signal and you're not too hot and you know you've you've got what you need, there's no reason to to think about sound anymore. I, I talked I touched about this when I talked about producing and engineering at the same time. And so the whole point is to get the discipline to simplify things as much as possible. You don't need to record everything stereo. In fact, you don't need to record just about anything stereo. I get stereo drums. I understand that. I understand a stereo piano if it's a piano vocalist and the piano is the featured instrument. But in general, um, stereo, all stereo does is eat up a bunch of space. If you want a strong stereo image, the best way to get that is to record all mono instruments and place them in your stereo image. Mm. You place a mono guitar with a completely independent mono guitar on the left and the right. Well, that's about as that's as wide as you can make your image. But if you record one guitar and you use two mics on that one guitar, well, you'll get a wide image, but you're also going to get that thing wrapping around your head because you're going to have phase issues. And, you know, if you're an engineer, okay, that's fine. You should record stereo sometimes. But if you're a musician, that's not going to be what makes your recording great. So, and all you're doing is introducing and complicating a process that you're not in a position to complicate. And you will learn a lesson and you'll fuck things up. And all I'm saying is, 
what do you gain by fucking up a stereo recording? Well, you gain the ability so next time maybe you won't fuck it up. Well, if you never record stereo in the first place, then you don't have to worry about it. And you don't have to learn that part of the engineering. And if you're in a situation where, well, I really want big stereo drums, well, you should be going in the studio anyway and recording with a guy who understands how to record stereo. <laughs> so stick with your strengths, stick with what you're able to do, and just keep the engineering side as simple as you possibly can um, so that you can concentrate on the music and the arrangement and everything else that's actually important. Yeah, I, I hear you. It's like, keep it as simple as you can because you got a lot of work cut out for you just trying to make a great song and great music. Exactly. And you've been, and, and becoming a great musician and a great performer. You know, you record, you asked me a little bit ago about, you know, microphones and performers and you put a, a microphone in front of an amazing performer, even if it's not a great microphone, it's going to pick up that performance. And if that guy puts up, uh, puts out an, uh, an inspiring performance, you're going to capture that. Yeah. Okay, and you're going to capture the performance of that and what it does to you with absolute fidelity. Uh, you put uh, a terrible player or someone who can't perform at all in front of uh, a, a, the greatest recording chain in the world, and it's going to reveal the atrociousness before you with absolute fidelity. Right. So, you know... We're capturing performances, and performances are what move us. So stop thinking about the sound. Well, one of the best ways to discover that, I feel like, in my experience, was um, if you have an opportunity to use the same mics on multiple bands or musicians, even the exact same setup, it can be really revealing how different it comes. the sound is coming out of the speakers each time. So, for example... Once a year, I go down to Bonnaroo and I set up a, a studio and we'll have bands come in every hour. And so it's very much the exact same setups. And I noticed that early on. I, I would have, uh, you know, these mics set up and one band would, you know, some artists would come in and I'm patting myself on the back thinking, dude, you are like one kick-ass engineer. This sounds really, really good. And then uh, an hour later, another band would come in that wasn't quite as good. And all of a sudden, I think I'm terrible at what I do because I can't figure out how to get it to sound right. And, and it, you know, it occurred to me that it was really just, it's these performances. Mm -hmm. It's amazing how little we have to do with it. It's just hilarious. <laughs> well, so for the people who are listening, for the rock stars who um, are still thinking, yeah, but which mic do I put up, you know? What, what advice do you have for them about that? Is that? Is some of that advice in the book as far as understanding... Uh, you know, the differences between a dynamic mic and a large diaphragm condenser and, you know, making that initial choice so that you can just simply set a level and just start making music from there. Yeah, I talk about all of the advantages and disadvantages to the different microphones. You know, dynamics have uh, a more pronounced mid-range, which is why some people like to put them on guitar amps. Um, but they also, and they can take higher SPLs than some other mics, but... Uh, and they have great rejection uh, properties, which is why a lot of times we stick them on the toms and on the snare drum because the drums are surrounded by cymbals yeah. and we kind of want to reject those cymbals. And on the stage. And on the stage. And then, you know, the, 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 the condensers have, um, they have a, they're more full range and they have a faster transient response, which is so, you know, if you if you want to get a fast transient response, then 
then the condenser is the better choice. And I talk about all of the considerations that you that you make based on the microphones and their attributes in general. Now you have to understand your own microphones because not all fifty sevens have fifty uh, sevens. Not all dynamics have a pronounced mid range, right? Mm-hmm. But. Um, and I talk about ribbons and I talk about all of that stuff. And I just want to go back though, just real quick to your, uh, comment about, uh, recording bands one after another. And, uh, I worked with this producer, Ron Aniello in the early aughts for a bunch of records and he's a guitar player and he's a really good guitar player. And he would be, he would go in and okay let's get a guitar tone and he'd get the guitar tone and one time I remember one time we're at NRG and he's he's got he he's like I want to get a guitar tone I'm like I don't know what the point is <laughs> he's we've been, we've made a bunch of records at this point uh-huh. so I could talk to him like this and and he's like what do you mean I'm like because as soon as I can get a great guitar tone with you it'll take us about five minutes but as soon as the band player goes on there it's gonna go to shit. He's like, that's a terrible attitude. <laughs> okay, <laughs> all right, let's get the tone. So I get the tone with him. He's like, that sounds great. And then five minutes later, he comes in and, and the guitar player is set up and he starts playing. He's like, that sounds awful. What the hell happened to it? And he could not understand. I'm like, dude, it's all in the hands. That's it. The tone is all in the hands and how the person interacts with you know with their ears. You have great tone. Band guitar players, rock band guitar players don't have great tone. So we got to jump through some hoops. And so I start plugging in compressors and then I got to start. That's when the engineer earns his money because he's got to, you know, make something that's not so great usable. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you put something great in front of me. I don't gotta do anything except put the mic in front of the person. So, you know. Uh, you know, one of the things I remember reading in The Adventures of Mixer Man was you having this hilarious description of getting a guitar tone on a metal record and having like a, an assistant out there having to move the 57 around a cone. It sounded like a thousand different positions trying to choose, choose the best one. And uh, I, I don't know if it was, I don't remember whether it was totally, you know, totally serious or partly tongue in cheek, but. Well, it sounded like a lot of work to get there, too. Yeah, well, if you want to get the best way to get a great guitar tone is keep practicing. Uh, you know, and and I'll tell you, dynamics, the thing about dynamics, you move a dynamic a millimeter on a cone and the tone changes dramatically. Yeah. You put a condenser or a ribbon on a, on a cone, you can move it five inches and it doesn't change all that much. So, you know... The, if the player's getting a good tone out of the amp, I'm not going to use a dynamic. If the player's not getting a good tone out of the amp, then maybe I'm going to use a dynamic just because I got to find some magical spot on that cone to make it so that that thing has some evenness in tone. Um, do you have any uh, tips or recommendations about finding that magical spot on a cone with a dynamic? You know what I do? I I get, tell the guitar player to go take a break, and then I turn the amp way the hell up until the hiss is just outrageously loud and then I put the headphones on and I move the microphone around on the cone until the hiss in the headphones matches in tonality to the hiss that's outside of the headphones. Oh, cool. And Great mo- tip. Once I have that, then I can go in and usually the guitar tone is is pretty much there. That's great. And I also use ribbons. So ribbons are much more forgiving. I use one uh, Royer 121s pretty much exclusively on guitars. Sometimes they're too ambient because all ribbons are figure eight or I shouldn't say all the majority of ribbons are figure eights. Royer 121s are no exception, which means that the back 
of the microphone is picking up information just as much as the front of the microphone that's facing the amp. So, you know, I might be inclined to put a rug underneath the amp to reduce the reflections that are coming up from the floor into the back of the microphone. And sometimes a ribbon doesn't work because it's too ambient. But for the most part, that's that's my mic of choice for guitars. And I don't think about it too much beyond that because it doesn't matter. What matters is what the guitar player plays. Yeah, well, that's great. Well, um, let's take a break for just a second and then we'll come back in for the jam session. Rockstar is a reminder that you can find links to what we're talking about if you just click through on your mobile device, whatever you're listening to on. Uh, links will be right there, uh, including a YouTube playlist of some of Eric's awesome videos. And um, we'll see you guys in just a minute for the jam session. You've already invested in your studio speakers, headphones, and treatment of the room. And you're passionate about creating great music, but your mixes don't seem to translate to the rest of the world. The reason is that your speakers and headphones are not telling you the whole story. The frequency response of your studio has huge peaks and valleys all throughout the low end that are completely screwing up your perspective. You may be doing your best to hit the bullseye with your mix, but your room makes the target of a perfect mix impossible to find. Wouldn't it feel great if there was a simple tool that could fix all that for you and help you get your mixes right the first time? Introducing Sonarworks Reference 4 the affordable solution to correcting your speakers and headphones in your studio. Built for Windows and Mac, Sonarworks helps you position your speakers, correct your control room imperfections, and get a million dollar sound on a home studio budget. Get a 21-day free trial at sonarworks.com and start your journey toward the perfect mix. Are you using a Mac in your recording studio? Are you tired of feeling like the studio setup you worked so hard to create is becoming obsolete too quickly? Wouldn't it feel great to have a trusted friend to help you keep your existing Mac and studio setup current and relevant so that you can focus on the thing you love most, which is making great music? Well, now you can rely on OWC, Other World Computing, which you can find at OWC.com, whose mission it is to help you get the most mileage out of your existing Mac. Whether you need to upgrade your RAM, install an SSD drive, add more connectivity, or simply find a great used Mac that's ready to rock, OWC will help take your studio into the future with a vast library of DIY install videos, 24-7 friendly support, and free shipping in the U.S. on most items over $49. Why get frustrated and ditch your existing computer when you can take your studio into the future with OWC? Learn more at OWC.com and find out how awesome your Mac can be at OWC. Hey, Rockstars, Lidshaw, we're back now for the jam session. My guest today is Eric Serafin, a.k.a. Mixer Man. We're going to jump in for some more questions about his newest book, The Musician's Survival Guide to a Killer Record, and also just talking about making records. Eric, you ready to jam? Yeah. All right. Do it. Um, let's see. What did I want to ask you about next? You you talked about a uh, you know, pretty basic question, but what is mixing and mastering? Um, and I wondered if you wanted to elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, well, there's so much just confusion about the whole thing. It's just, first of all, you know, how many times am I sent an email asking me if I 
want to mix and master something. And most of the time, the person doesn't really even understand the difference between the two processes. Um, and I think that there's just been a lot of mythology passed around over the years. And for whatever reason, you know, the person further down the line becomes more and more important. And especially now, because people, you know, can't even fathom paying for a mixer, but then they'll pay a mastering engineer to master something that's, you know, not that great to begin with and expecting to get decent results. And the thing is, Mixing is a process that's is, is an aggressive process in which, as a mixer, I'm trying to eke out an emotional response. Mm -hmm. Like I want the I need the the listener to move. I need the listener to be singing. I need the listener to, you know, I want to cause certain uh, particular motions. And so these are the things that I'm thinking about, and I'm using my balances to make this happen, right? But as a mastering engineer, you have very limited ability. You can make things louder. You can compress. You can change balances, but you're doing it with, with equipment rather than with faders. And so you only have minimal control over the process like that. And so in the book, I actually recommend that for most musicians, you do not need mastering. And if you're not going to hire a mixer, I can understand that too. But if you're not going to hire a mixer, there's no point in hiring a mastering engineer either. And whatever you do, don't give someone stems and have them do stems mixing, which is basically making stereo submixes of your drums and your bass and your keys and your guitars and having someone else balance it from there. Because that, that half measure, it's impossible to, to put together something that's Yes, the person would be able to put together the thing more in balance, perhaps, but they're not going to be able to approach it uh, with the intent of being causing certain reactions from the listener. And as a music maker, as a musician, the whole the whole method of this is to create the record with intent from top to bottom. And if you do that, you don't even really need a mix process. And if you do need a mix process then you need to hire a mixer. And he, I actually recommend that people uh, use automated mastering. Uh, there's all sorts of services where you can sign up a subscription fee. I don't want to say anybody in particular. We all right. know who I'm thinking right. of. And uh, uh, they'll send you back your master. thing is, there's no notes process. Uh, you can get it a little loud, medium loud, or very loud. Uh, you can't tell the bot how to EQ it. But a lot of times, all you really need to do is just get the thing up to level so that when people listen in their car or whatever, it doesn't disappear on them. Yeah. Um, well, the funny, the funny that, thing about the, uh, the automated mixing is um, my experience with it is entirely from the perspective of doing this professionally and having some professional opinion about it. So, but I imagine, you know, if I was, if I discovered that when I was just first making my own recordings, I would just be thrilled about it. I worked with this, this guy around here, um, and, um, who's learning and, and I, I helped him produce this artist and, 
you know, he's like, well, asking me about mastering. He's very green. And so I'm mentoring him a little bit here. And um, and I'm like, yeah, and he asked me about the automated mastering. And I'm like, absolutely not. Don't don't even run it through that. We're not, we're going to, you know, we're going to use Dave, Dave Collins, who I use for most of my stuff. And, um, and then he went and did it anyway. And I was so mad <laughs> that he did that because... What happens is, what happened, and I knew that this would happen, is then everything gets compared to that master. And then changes, then you start getting into this thing where you start chasing algorithms, you know? Okay, well, we can't tell the bot what to do, but maybe if we change the mix, it'll come out the way we want. Well, you know, I, I knew to avoid that as well. And so we went through this thing where, you know, Every time I send it to a new mastering engineer, I think we sent it actually to three mastering engineers, this particular one, it would it'd be compared to that. And it was just such a nightmare. But And I was so mad. And then after the whole thing was over and the, the dust settled, I'm like, you know, when I really think about it, that master wasn't that bad. And in fact, it was better than the first two MEs. So that is, we ended up with the third, which was Dave Collins. Finally, I'm like, dude, let me just hire Dave. He's, you know, whatever. We'd be done with this nonsense. And, uh, and it was better. It was the best. So I realized, wow, okay. So for me, as a professional... It's kind of a nightmare. But if I was a musician, that would be really, really handy because I don't know how to, I'm an, I, even as a mixer, I question my, you know, whether I should be strapping two buses, I'm sorry, strapping uh, limiters to the two bus and doing quick mastering jobs on my own. I do. I don't add EQ. I'm starting to wonder whether we need mastering at all, period. You know? <laughs> At least that's not controversial. <laughs> but, I, you know, I will say that, that you know, from my perspective, ma mastering is the stage that happens after mixing. So, I mean, you know, I feel like part of the message is, you know, get the mix great. Start there, you know. Um, and, and I know that some of my early frustrations with mastering, you know, I might have wished for something to sound better or be more exciting or something. Why didn't it sound like my favorite thing? And it took me a while to realize that it was just because I was fucking up my mixes. My mixes sucked. That's why the mastering wasn't doing the magic I hoped for. But I, but I do believe that, you know, the process of properly mixing a record and then working with a great mastering engineer is a great way to make a record. The crazy thing is, is if like, if I get the mix like super dialed in, which I, I always try to do, and then uh, I, I I'll send it to Dave, and and then I'll be I'll get it back, and I'm like, oh my god, what this is so much better. This is like, like uh, we have a running joke. I say you saved my ass again, Dave, and he's always chuckles. He's like, I added a half a dB on the top, and took either added or took away half a dB on the bottom, and gave it two to three dB of limiting. And I'm like, that's all you did? And I'm like, it's the difference is so enormous. So, you know, but then you if you if you if you turn in something that's really bad, the difference is enormous, but it's just but it's not better. So you know what I mean? It's just different. Well, and so I get it back and it's like everything, anything that 
if I couldn't sing, stop singing before, I really can't stop singing now. I mean, I'll put on the record and I'm just like two, two words in, I'm singing the stupid thing. I'm like, oh shit, I'm supposed to be listening. Okay, stop, 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 listen. <laughs> All right, and then I'm singing again and I'm dancing. And then at some point I go, okay, well, if I can't stop singing and dancing to it, then I guess it's right. That's great. Well, so now you're talking about um, frequencies. You're bringing that up now, the top end and the bottom end. And I know that was uh, one of the topics in the book too. What would you like to say about frequencies? How would you like to introduce you know, that to the rock stars if they're new to this? Well, first of all, one of the things, and, you know, I kind of had a little bit of an aha. I even talk about it in the book as an aha. And that is when I started doing note ranges and I realized the top note of a piano was 4K or 3K in that range. And the top note of a violin was 3 or 4K. I'm like, wait a second. The top note of the violin is 4K. That means the, prebon- the, pre- the preponderance of our harmonic information is below 4K. Yeah. So well, our range of hearing is uh, 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz, really more like 18 or less. So the 4K... How much have we left? We've we've got another 16k before we get to the top of our hearing range. <laughs> so uh, it just makes you wonder why do we brighten the shit out of everything? And I understand. Okay, percussion is up there. We understand that. We know that the overtones extend way way above 20 kilohertz and beyond. And so when we add top end, we're we're bringing out the the harmonics, and those do good things. But when you really think about it, why we add a lot of top end to things? I always felt people added way too much top end, and now I realize why, because there's just not that much information of value up there. Yeah, Most of the valuable information is down low. Well, and, you know, the other aha moment for me about frequencies is, you know, when you get down lower into the bass range, um, low mids and the, and the bass of your mix, there's just not that much room. And that was actually something I picked up from um, Zen and the Art of Mixing was, you know, you opened my eyes to the idea that when you're dealing with bass and and kick drums, you need to decide who gets what. You know, it's like you can't just have everybody doing the same shit because it just sounds like a mess. Someone's got to be lower than the other. And, you know, and I, I put that online and someone will say, well, how can the bass moves? Okay, yeah, the bass, obviously there's... The bass frequencies move, but there's a. Uh, uh, you'll notice if you if you if you take a microphone and the DI signal of a bass and without moving without time aligning them, if you flip the phase on one of them, you will hear that the bass either goes way low or or up higher. Uh, the the basic frequency feel of it. And so either you want that low end blossom to come up from the kick with the bass above it. Or you want that bass to be down low with the kick coming above the bass. And if you can do that, then you can have control over, you can bring clarity to those two instruments. And and um, let's talk about musicianship and, um, you know, performance again. You take a couple of songs like Running With The Devil or Another One Bites The Dust, and maybe the bass doesn't move all that much. <laughs> maybe that's what makes the low end pretty awesome on those songs. Well... I'll tell you, my, I have a beef with all those 80s songs. I, I, I feel like, I feel like, 
You know, for so many years, we couldn't really put the kind of low end that we like to put on records these days. And even throughout my whole career, you know, in the mid 90s, yeah. uh, hip hop sounded way different then than it does today as well. For sure. And, and I was using way more low end than others at the time. And then in the mid 90s, when I got called to do Ben Harper's record, and I listened to that, and I'm like, man, I could put a lot of low end on this. And so I did. And people weren't doing that partly because the well I was young so I you know but the, all of the established mixers had been mixing the vinyl you know for vinyl all those years and so they're not going to start changing the way they do things they have a system they hear a certain way and so there was this lag time between when CDs came out and when people started to put full range mixes on on there because you could yeah and and so now then we went through the loudness wars. And so those started in the, like, 97. That's when the beginning of it was, maybe slightly earlier. And probably got to its worst around the early aughts, 03, 04. And uh, so with loudness, you cannot get the kind of low end that we like today. And because the, the it distorts, right. falls apart. So, um, and you have to reduce the low end if you're going to make it louder. And so we went through another decade where we weren't mixing with a lot of low end. And now that streaming sites, you know, we can make more dynamic records and we're not going to get killed and we don't have to worry about radio so much. And we don't have to worry about being in CD bins and being louder than the next record. And streaming sites are leveling the playing field on, on the level so that we can listen to their ads really loud, of course. Uh -huh. And um, so... You know, so now the low end is just off the charts. It's great. I love it. I'm not complaining at all. And then, and the crazy part is the, like the headphones and everything else, the low ends off the charts on the consumer playback too. So like, it's just, it's just, it's a wild time as far as the low end's concerned right now. But I will say this about your, your, your example of those two songs. I feel that rock producers pretty much sloughed off the bass throughout the 80s. You know, and I talk about this. You have the opportunity to create uh, some very inventive bass parts today because you can make the bass very audible mm -hmm. and no one will think twice about it. And the bass is a very powerful instrument. It provides its own kind of counter melody. It's not technically a counter melody, but it kind of is. And um, I even added it as one of the musical functions and arrangement. I used to have five. I added bass. Melody, counter melody, rhythm, um, call and response, mm -hmm. uh, bass, and what's the sixth one now? Ah, uh, too much to think about. And then, um, so staying on the tonic and just playing with the guitars or following the guitars is, you know, okay, well, that works. It puts the low end on, but it's not very musically inventive. Mm -hmm. And... I think that if I was a producer in the 80s, I probably would have done the same thing because it didn't matter because we couldn't do much with the low end anyway. But now it makes no sense. You might as well make inventive bass parts. All right. Good answer. <laughs> I like that. Um, Obviously, you can r ride the bass on the tonic and it shouldn't really affect whether the record's successful. There's been plenty of records that do that. But Well, I think about saying. like, you know, earlier, much earlier than the 80s, you think about like James Jameson and, and Motown, and that is definitely... Uh, inventive bass that's doing all kinds of stuff. Yep. Um, cool, man. 
there's another topic that you brought up, which is width. Why is width important? Well, personally, as a listener, I much prefer wide mixes, but I have noticed over the years that, you know, we are dealing with space. And uh, when it comes to space, uh, we have width, which is our left and our right. We have height, which is our frequency. The low frequencies appear down on the bottom. If you close your eyes in the stereo field, you can, you can actually visualize this. The low frequencies appear on the bottom. The high frequencies appear high. Um, and everything stacks up neatly along the way. Uh, we have uh, balance, which is uh, front to back. If something's very loud, it's very forward in the mix. If it's not very loud, it's very back in the mix. We have reflectivity, which is the use of space within our space, uh, reverbs, delays. Sometimes it's natural. Sometimes it's canned and added later. Mm -hmm. And so all of these things are space, and this is the space that we operate in. And as with in the physical world, we can fill the space. So the more you fill the space, the more difficult our jobs become. The more difficult it becomes to make things sound big, the more difficult it becomes to balance things, the more difficult it becomes to, to give everything in the mix a place and clarity. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to make your life easier in making your record, then you want to use the full width that you have available to you in your production. That doesn't mean at all times. Sometimes we want to use contrast too, which is the fifth plane of space, which is the contrast between uh, um, density and and sparsity. And and there's other things, the contrast between brightness and darkness. And we use that contrast to, to our benefit. So you're not using the width all the time, but in the process of your record, you want to use as much of the width as possible um, because it gives you space to work with. It gives you a vocal in the center that has less to compete with, so you're not mucking up the middle. And it's the same with stereo instruments. Like putting a bunch of stereo keyboards, all that does is muck up the middle and make it so you have to place the vocal louder and makes your job more difficult and making a record that moves you physically as well as moves you emotionally. And so I read online all the time about people, uh, yeah, I, I tow all my drums in. I'm like, well, why would you tell your drums in? Why would you record stereo and then pan them at nine and three o'clock? Because the listener really does not know whether you pan it at nine and three or whether you pan it hard. But you will. When you're trying to mix that thing, you will because you've just mucked up the middle even more. Right. You made less space for yourself. Exactly. And so for me, the only thing I want in the middle is the vocal, the snare, the kick, and the bass, which is not really in the middle because it's low end and it it goes everywhere. Uh, how about everything else? I want guitars. as far away from that as possible. Sorry, how how about acoustic guitars? I feel like a lot of our home musicians making records and trying to figure out how to mix, maybe recording acoustic guitars. Do you have any advice about um, how those might be treated? Actually, well, first of all, actually, I remember that you did have some great advice in the book. Now that I'm thinking of it. Yeah. My first advice when it comes to acoustic guitars is don't record it stereo. 
I don't understand why people record acoustic guitar stereo. This is a very small instrument. It sits in the player's lap, which means it shifts. When you put two microphones in close proximity on a shifting instrument, that's a single source of collection, single point source of collection, you're going to get phase coherency issues. You're going to hear comb filtering. You're going to hear that movement manifest between those two mics in the stereo image. That's going to cause cancellation. That's going to cause it to be noticed. Sometimes that's unavoidable. I put a, if I want to record a vocalist who's playing his acoustic guitar, I'm going to have those things occur. That's fine. But if I don't have to cause that, then why would I? So my suggestion with acoustic guitars is record it mono and place it somewhere in the field that you think is appropriate. Uh, personally, I record all acoustic guitars mono and... Sometimes I'll pan it soft if there's not a lot of stuff in the production. If there is a lot of stuff in the production, I have no problems with panning it hard. I have no problems with asymmetry, and I don't really understand why people do have a problem with asymmetry, because if you don't have asymmetry and you don't use asymmetry, then you're not using the contrast for symmetry. Without symmetry, there is no asymmetry and vice versa. Right. So we need to use them both. And so it's okay if, you're, if you have a single acoustic guitar hard left and the vocal in the middle. And it's okay if in the chorus, another guitar comes in hard right. And then we've got the full width. We've given ourselves this great contrast between asymmetry and symmetry. We've given ourselves a lift in the rhythm because now we've got two acoustic guitars. You know, you got to like think about your space and your arrangement along these terms um, because this is how we push the listener forward through a song is through these tricks. I like that. Um, and I like the reminder that asymmetry is just as useful as symmetry. So, you know, use it as an expressive tool. I, the thing is, here's the thing I'll say about, about width. The listener doesn't care. The listener won't know if you mix it mono. Really won't. Does not care. You will rarely hear a punter say anything about the panning. Might muse, oh, I love how they pan that back and forth, or not, they might not use it, how it goes back and forth between, you know, across my head. Okay, they might comment on it, but no one is ever going to complain. I hate the fact that the guitar is on the left. The only people that get weirded out by that are people making records. <laughs> and, and who... Who's, uh, who, who's the uh, consumer base? It's probably not the people making records. No, the consumer doesn't care. So then why? Well, you could mix mono all you want. We don't do it for the consumer, or you shouldn't do it for the consumer. Do it for yourself to make it easier to put everything together. Because at the end of the day, you want to be able to hear everything that you put in your production. You want clarity on everything. And you want the things to kind of be balanced in a way that that causes the right reaction. Mm -hmm. So, and that's all about clarity. So. Yeah. You talked a lot about that in the book about, um, you know, again, that topic of what makes a song popular um, versus, you know, what, what we think equals high end engineering or something. And then also the, um, the, the importance of creating a reaction with the music in order to help more people want to, Listen to it. That's all that matters is the reaction. Nothing else matters because you can make the greatest sounding record on earth. If it doesn't get a reaction, no one on earth will know it. 
So great. You know about the record. It's the greatest sounding record on earth, but you're the only one that knows about it. So what does it matter? But if you get a reaction, then it doesn't matter what it sounds like either. Because, because I routinely, I don't, you know, song, my most well-known songs are not necessarily my most best engineered songs or best mixed songs necessarily. I mean, they may or may not be, but the point is that it, it, it could be terrible if it's a hit. I'm putting it on my disco on my reel and my discography right. and I'll get work from it because that's all that matters is the reaction. So why think about anything other than how you're going to get that reaction? Any thoughts or tips on discovering whether or not you're getting getting a reaction or going to get a reaction during the process of making a record to keep, sort of guide it and steer it in the right direction? All I ever do is try and make a cause a reaction out of myself and if I cause a reaction out of myself I can be reasonably assured then I'm going to get a similar reaction out of others. I know this because I've been doing this a long time and it's kind of worked out that way. I don't put it past the possibility that there's some people that can cause themselves to react one way and no one else on earth reacts that way. But I would say that's probably rare. So if you can cause yourself... Listen, the one thing I notice when I go in a studio, right, early, early days when I was in the studio and there'd be lots of people around, right? You get a record pump in a certain way and all of a sudden you start looking at the people in the room, they're all moving the same way. Either they're bouncing their head up and down or they're tapping their toe or they're, whatever. It doesn't matter what the motion is. Most of the people are doing the same motion. Well, once I realized that, I realized, well, if it's causing me to do that, then it's causing others to do that. So all I have to do is cause myself the reaction. And so I, I, there's plenty of times that I get a mix where I go, this sounds great, but it's boring me. And so then I got to really start to like figure out, okay, what do I have to do to get a reaction out of myself? Because this is not working like this. Yeah. Um, I think about the first times I ever played music I was working on for other people and how I would want to not look at them. I'd want to look away and just let them listen and, you know, kind of like be sweating bullets, worrying about how they reacted. And now I think if I play somebody music, I'm probably just looking at them to just see if they're nodding their head or tapping their foot. Yep. Um, let's see, what do we want to talk about next? Uh, you, you know, you've written this book, your, your most recent one, a reminder rock stars, musicians survival guide to a killer record. And um, we'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. Um, so you can go check that out. Highly, highly recommend that you read that book. It's awesome. I'm, I'm, I haven't finished it. I'm, I'm deep into it, but I'm really, really enjoying it. Um, I wonder if you could share a story about writing the book and publishing it. And, you know, having written and published books of your own in the past, and I feel like this would apply to, you know, a music making story as well. What have you learned this time after publishing many books before and, and doing it this way? Anything changed in that process for you? Well, everything's constantly changing, but uh, it is a little different with me being the publisher uh, because I have to think about other things that I don't normally have to think about. But not as much as you might think because... You know, all my other books are published by Hal Leonard, and they're just not the kind of publisher that is going to do any promotion for you. So you pretty much have to generate all of that on your own. And um, I found that I didn't generate it as much with a publisher. And now that I've written it on my own, I kind of want to generate it more. I feel like I have more control I make considerably more on a copy than I do through the publisher. 
I, I couldn't even, I couldn't possibly make a living writing these kinds of books with a publisher. Um, not that I'm trying to make a living, but at the moment, but eventually one day I kind of would like to, you know, at some point, yeah, it doesn't make sense for me to be in the studio. Well, they're great books. So, so you should be able to do that. I hope so. And then, uh, I think it's just, we're all kind of in the same boat here. Myself as a writer, myself as a producer, even, mm -hmm. and, and musicians. And that is that we are in a world where technology is changing rapidly and and the distribution of music has changed rapidly. And it's not just in music, it's in everything. And it's in how we rent cars and how we rent houses and go on vacation. It's on how we do everything. And we are in an age now of independence. Uh, I go on Huffington Post, and we're in an age of mediocrity. I go on Huffington Post, and I just find it shocking the number of of typos and mm -hmm. in in an article, yeah. because speed is more important than quality, and um, so we're all in this age of independence where we've we've got to like, you know, the, we used to want a million fans. <laughs> now you're not going to get a million fans, but man, if you can get a few thousand. I don't care what you're doing. You can make a living. Yeah. And more than a living, you can get ahead. And so for me, writing this and doing this completely independent, I feel like I'm more in touch with what musicians have to do and deal with today. You know, you've got, I've got my Vimeo account and I've got my, uh, you know, my, my social media accounts that I have to do the regular rounds on and, and I'm terrible with all of that stuff. It's so outside of, I don't have that, that kind of discipline per se. Mm. I can acquire it. I will acquire it. But it's outside of, of my natural tendencies. And um, so it's really, it used to be like Robert Plant, you wanted to have a certain mystery about you as a rock star. And now you kind of actually want to personally know all of your fans. Yeah. And that's weird. That's crazy. And you can't possibly do it once you get a million fans. But in the early days, you got to know every one of your fans and you got to have a personal relationship with them. It doesn't have to be, you know, you don't have to go have drinks with them or anything, but you, you have to have contact with them. They have to feel like they're a part of it. And so that's, you know, these are the, I'm not sure there, there's, it's so much global realizations as just constantly dealing with the changing landscape. You know, it's, it's just constantly reinventing yourself based on the way things are now. Yeah. Well, there was a couple of things you said in there that reminded me um, of something you mentioned in your book, and then also just sort of a point of encouragement. So you talked about, you know, Huffington Post putting out things with typos in it. You know, it's like everything, it's all about speed rather than quality. And you reminded us in the book that when you're writing these songs and you're putting out your records, that that um, contrary to you know initial instinct, you might not want to release all your first and earliest recordings. You might actually want to kind of keep them under wraps for a while until you really have created a record that you can live with and and you really really want to stand by. 
and then give that a real release. Um, and then also, you know, you talked about 3,000 fans. I mean, we live in a world that's, what, seven, eight billion people now. Um, and I, I find that encouraging. I mean, if you really just, you know, are intentional and manifest what you want to do, you probably can find 3,000 people, you know, 1,000 to 3,000 people in the world that are going to really like what you do. You just have to reach them. That's right. You got to find them. That's the whole thing about the reaction. You're going to find, there's going to be people that react to your music. I don't care what it is. I don't care how bad it is or how bad I think it is or you think it is. There's going to be people that love it. So it's really a matter of how many people, how big is the reaction going to be? If it's a big hit, a lot, a lot of people like it and they have had access to it, right? Mm -hmm. If, if, so really, once you make your art, you got to go find the people that light up from that art. Yeah. And once you find the people that light up from that art, you found your fans. Well, let me jump into some of the final jam session questions here, and we'll kind of wrap up. Um, Eric, when you started out in recording or started out in, in uh, writing and publishing, what do you feel like was holding you back? Um, the technical. I always... I, I couldn't understand, like, it was so hard to learn the recording. It was the hardest thing I ever had to learn. And granted, I was only 19 years old or 20 years old at the time, but uh, nothing's been that hard since then. It, it was some pretty tough tech back in the 80s as well. Well, it was a different, it was definitely different. But, uh, I mean, yeah, what you what was in an entire room, an entire control room fits into a computer now. So I'm I'm just glad that people don't still have to figure out links, um, time machines, and synchronizers, and and all that kind of stuff. There was so much to learn; it was ridiculous. And you know, I was uh, I, all I wanted to do was record the song, you know, and it was so frustrating. And I have to like stop and okay, I don't hear anything. <laughs> you know, that's the worst. I mean, I can think of times. Like, it's hard to not hear anything now, but back then in a full studio, you could hear nothing for half an hour, like just trying to find that one button oh, in that right. sea of buttons. You, you mean you press play hit. and there's just nothing coming out of the speakers? Nothing, zero, yeah. So, you know. That, I can do that now. If I go try out a new DAW and it's got some, you know, back-end, you know, secondary app mixer in it, uh, that'll happen to me, but... Once you've got your setup going, it's a, it's a lot easier. I think the other thing that was holding me back, along with the technicals, part of it was just not really. We didn't have communities like online like we have today. There, there was no online then, really. I mean, and so not like it is today, and not even like it was in the early '90s. So um, I, now people can talk about it, and you can kind of mentor online. That's not as good as mentoring in person. I, I understand this, but I didn't really even have a mentor in person. I remember times just feeling like I was on an island, like having no idea. What does anybody else in the world do? Okay, so yeah, the chief engineer told me this is what he does and what they do, but he's just some schmo in Boston. What does someone do in LA? Do they do it any differently? You know, and so those were the kinds of things that I found the most frustrating was not really knowing where I was at in the whole thing yeah. and, and, and feeling like not knowing how long it was going to take me to get there on top of it. Well, at that point, you know, you were probably looking for advice from 
people to help you know what to do. What was what do you remember as some of the best advice you received? The best advice I ever received was it's not who you know, it's who you avoid. <laughs> and that 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 advice I learned from my friend Peter Benetta in Los Angeles and if you spend any time in the record business in Los Angeles, well if you did from the 90s till now, it's it's definitely advice to take. Um, I feel like that's more self-publishing advice. In fact, even in your book, um, you know, you talked about if you're creating a reaction in people, then that means some people are going to love it and some people are going to hate it, and that that's important. You need it's a good sign if you have haters, you know, but I but your advice is avoid them. You know, don't get caught up with with the people who don't like what you do. Uh, avoid them so you can find the people that do. Yes, absolutely, for sure. Um, you know, I like to also ask guests to share a recording tip, a hack, or secret sauce, something the rock stars could use today on their next session. You've already talked about a bunch of stuff, but is there anything else that you'd like to bring up? Yeah, and we didn't talk about it either, which is compression. And I talk a lot about compression in the book because compression is kind of an important tool. But I think that what I've discovered and what people don't realize, I think a lot of people don't realize, is that if you almost need more than one instance of a compressor, especially on things like vocals and bass, not on everything. Some things only need one compressor. But if you want to get, I talk about inaudible compression and audible compression. Mm -hmm. If you want to get audible compression, you can use one compressor and you can hit it very hard and that's all well and good. But if you want inaudible compression, but you want it to still be compressed, then you're best to use a few compressors in series, at least. And if you think about it, that really is no different from what the process used to be. Uh, when I record, I put the put put things through compressors. Then we go to if uh, maybe let's say the vocal. I compress the vocal. Then when I bounce it, I could conceivably compress it again when I do my bounce, or I'm sorry, my compilation when I compile it. And then a lot of times I'll compress it again at mix. Well, if you're not using analog compressors and everything's just going into the DAW, then you've missed out on those three stages. So you may as well put, I'll put an EQ compressor, EQ compressor, EQ compressor. I'll run it to a bus too and put another compressor on that. And I'll hit them a little bit at a time. And so when you hit plug-in compressors lightly, they, they work really well. When you start to hit them more aggressively, depending on the plugin, they start to model the, um, the artifacts that occur in analog compressors. And a lot of times that modeling happens, in my opinion, too early. Mm. And I start to hear the compressor before I'm like even at a point where I should be hearing the compressor. So my way around this for inaudible compression is to hit a bunch of different compressors in series with EQs between them. Maybe I put the EQ, maybe I uh, apply EQ in there, maybe I don't. Um, a lot of times, if I have a vocal that's kind of strident, I might boost my low end into the compressor because the compressor reacts to that low end, and then that attenuates the, the harshness of the vocal. And so that would be my advice is, is um, don't try necessarily to achieve it with one compressor. And, and let me just... Before I leave that, let me just say, I do not put three compressors on everything. I put one compressor on most things, possibly, uh, but certain things that I really need to stay dynamically 
you know, solid in the mix, like the vocal, like the bass, I will put more than one compressor on. Yeah, I think that's great. And and I remember sort of being mind blown when I was working with a band and I was used to using one compressor on a vocal and and they said, I read somewhere that, you know, they so-and-so used three compressors. And I was like, three? That's crazy talk, you know? I know. It's crazy talk. I agree. And when I was, when, when Charles Dye um, did his, um, uh, his DVD in the mid-aughts and he sent it to me, I called him up and I'm like, Charles, you really put four compressors on everything? And I, I had never mixed in, or uh, maybe I mixed dabbled in the box, but I wasn't mixing in the box at that time. I was still working in the studios. He was mixing this in the box. He's like, oh man, when you use plugins, you gotta. And so I'm like, all right. And then I realized years later, it's still that way, really. Yeah. Well, um, and now as far as some of the tools that we want to use, um, do you have any favorite hardware tools or just anything that you're excited about that you want to give a mention to? Yeah, the thing, hardware... I think your most important tool these days is going to be your microphones. And there's a particular line of microphones. The Lewitt line of microphones, I think, is the best line of mics out there right now. Um, and what's crazy is they're, you know, normally I would not recommend someone start on the uh, lower end of their uh, line. But with Lewitt, you can. Like, their Pro 240, which is a medium condenser microphone... They charge $150 for it. It sounds great. It sounds amazing. And then their 440 Pure, which sells for $279, sounds just as good to me as my 940, which is a $1,500 mic, Lewis yeah. mic. But the thing is, so so why 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 is it that the that the that the low their lower end mic sound as good as their upper end mics? Well, they use the same technical design, as far as that's concerned, they just add bells and whistles on the other mics. My 940 uh, allows me to use the tube setting or the FET setting and anywhere in between. So because of that, I there's not very many people that don't sound great on it. In fact, I haven't found anybody yet. Um, so my recommendation is the Lewitt line across the board. You know, you can look at the different mics and decide what bells and whistles you need as far as polar patterns and all of that is concerned. But uh, if you just want a really amazing sounding microphone that is, that doesn't have stupid top-end distortion that a lot of these these mic lines have today, uh, I would recommend the Lewitt line. I have a bunch of their mics here as well, and I agree with you. I love them. The, the 940 is a really wonderful, useful mic. Um, in the studio. And then is the 440 the one that allows you to select your pickup pattern after the fact if you want to? No. The 440 Pure is a very simple mic. The 441 Flex has a bunch of patterns, but it's the, I think it's the 640 that allows you to, it has a second input into the mic, and then you can change the patterns after the fact. Now, for me, and for my methodology that I that I talk about in this book, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Right. But, but uh, you know, whatever. You don't have to get the 640. There's They have lots of great sounding mics. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, now how about a, a software tool? Anything that's a favorite or something you're excited about that you want to tell the rock stars about? I love the Sound Toys line. 
across the board. I think that line is amazing. The decapitator is just stupid good. I use it on all sorts of things. Um, all of their distortion properties are great in that line. Their effects, like the the Echo Boy, like I never used a stereo delay until the Echo Boy because I never could get a stereo delay sound that I liked. Yeah. <laughs> and that one, you stick it on, bam, ah. That's great. And then you start to go in deep and get the Echoplex settings and all the different settings, and, and you can really have a good time with that and, and, and makes life really easy. Anytime you can get a plug-in where you put it on and it sounds better, that's a good thing. Um, and then the other line I would say would definitely be Slate. And the thing about the Sound Toys line is you're going to have to pony up the money. With Slate, you could just get a subscription and, and start using it. And the thing about the Slate line is a lot of DAWs really don't have don't have good stock plugins. Um, and some of them have atrocious stock plugins. And uh, I use Logic. Logic has great plugins across the board, but there's some other DAWs that I would not even attempt to use without Slate's package. And he charges a subscription. So if that's the case with your DAW, you might want to try try that out and check out what he's got going because his, his compressors and his EQs sound great. Very cool. All Let me ask you a couple of questions about sound toys. Um, when you're talking about the Echo Boy and you've got all these variations on cool delays and effects, and I agree, they, they really, you can find something that's wonderful, but you can also find yourself putting in the time to dig around for that sound. Do you have any tips on speeding up that process? Or do you feel like sometimes you just need to put in the time each for each song you're mixing and look for the right effect? The, this the Echo Boy is probably not the greatest example because I could probably put that on just stock every time and it'd be fine. And, you know, at that point, I'm just kind of more messing around with what I, you know, it's kind of learning the device and the different tones I can get a lot of times. But um, the thing about all of those, that whole line is if you just start playing around with the parameters, you're not going to break it and you're going to find something that sounds really cool. So it's, you know, some things you start playing around with it and three hours later, you're still nowhere. Right. And that's just not the case with, with those plugins. Yeah. They're really easy to use and really easy to manipulate. And before long, you got exactly what you want. Um, any tips for somebody who's excited about checking out the decapitator and um, you know, like any, any cool discoveries for you uh, as far as the different selections within the plugin? Uh, I would say, first of all, I put the decapitator on routinely on kick drums and on bass. And now, you may not be able to hear that I have the decapitator on there. You may or you may not. Um, and sometimes I just give it the tiniest little bit of breakup because that distortion adds punch to the kick drum, mm -hmm. adds low end, especially with that decapitator. You put that thump knob in, oh, the low end just goes. And then um, the bass, the bass I tend to distort a little more, but low end instruments really, really love distortion because it brings out the upper harmonics and it makes it a lot easier to place them. And you can, again, you can make it audible. You don't have to make it audible. You can make it audible in solo and it's not so audible in the mix. Mm -hmm. uh, with bass, you could put just ridiculous amounts of distortion on it. And it can still be not all that audible, depending on on how dense the arrangement is. So, yeah. 
Yeah, that's a that's kind of a remarkable discovery when you first hear that. I mean, you may not hear any distortion on the bass unless it's like a bass solo for yeah. for a bar too. Yeah. Um, how about uh, any any comments you want to make on the business side of doing this professionally? Any advice for the rock stars? Um, I don't really know. Get a good CPA because you want to write off everything you possibly can. The thing about being a musician is just about everything that costs you money is probably for your business. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you can really bring your, you can really get your tax bill down. And if you're a business, uh, you know, you want to do that if you can. If you have expenses, you should not be paying taxes on your expenses. Yeah, yeah that's a good tip. And and those can be, I, I would say that it, at the very beginning, you think, oh, I can just keep track of this stuff in my head. And then pretty soon you can't. And that's the point at which you you really wish you had somebody help you keep it organized. So getting yeah, a CPA is my, great advice. I have my business separated so that, that everything goes on, you know, one or two cards. Uh, and so if it's a personal expense, it goes on a personal card, you know what I mean? Uh, or out of my bank account, whatever. And so I keep them separate. That way it's really easy to do the taxes afterwards because yeah. yeah. everything that's that's paid for is an expense. Um, okay, last two questions, both hypothetical. Um, imagine you were moving to a, a new location and you needed to have a simple setup to record with. You needed to find people to make music with and you wanted to uh, make some decision about making ends meet uh, at the beginning. Uh, or maybe this is advice you're giving to some young person who's who's just starting out. What would you recommend for those three things? Well... The advice that I would give someone young just starting out wouldn't be the same thing that I would do because I can leverage some things. But, um, you know, if I'm going into a city and I'm like, I got no money and I, I all I have is a, a MacBook Pro and a mic and, you know, a Lewitt 440 and an interface, well, and I'm on the street, I guess I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure out a way to make some cash right away. Maybe I'll uh, convince a busker to... Let me record them and bring in the audience to sing and we'll sell them a recording or something. Nice. Get myself fed. Then I'm going to start hitting studios because I'm pretty sure I'll be able to find someone who has a studio who's heard of Mixer Man and then I will be saved. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I, you know, I, I have no doubt that were I put in a, a situation like that, my wits would kick in and I would be able to. Uh, survive that. And I think that that's probably the, uh, if I had any advice, it's to get yourself in the headspace that you believe that you can, that you can uh, handle any situation. Wasn't, uh, wasn't Tesla, didn't he sort of end up penniless feeding the pigeons in the park? I I didn't even understand any of that. Who is that guy? (laughs) I'm just just saying, like, he's just a schmo, and like he's like like he wasn't a billionaire. It's crazy how that's now that's a manifestation there, man. Yeah, well, uh, there is a little bit of an analogy. There's there's talk of the way Tesla invented and the way that Edison invented. And Tesla made comments like, I've got models that are, you know, super fantastic. They've been running in my head for years. I'm doing tests on all kinds of ideas. Meanwhile, Edison's out there just doing a thousand experiments and inventing the light bulb and and taking off. And I feel like there's a little bit of an analogy between the musician who's just writing song after song and putting it out 
and the musician who says, I've, I'm working on the greatest record and nobody's heard it yet, but I promise you it's, it's in there. Well, the thing about Edison is if, if, if he didn't do those experiments, no one was going to give him any money. So, like, you know, he could say uh, in, in 18, the late 1800s, I got this idea. I'm going to make electricity. People would be able to turn lights on and shit. And everybody would have been like, whatever. But now, all you need are ideas. There's people that, 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 that their whole living is, is based on ideas because there's VC money. And if you've got a good idea and you go to people that have whole uh, money burning a hole in their pocket that they got to get rid of or got to put into something because they don't want to be making 1% on it in a bank account, well, you're going to be able to get money. That's a whole nother topic, isn't it? Yeah. Um, all right. So last question, so hypothetical as well. We're going to take the Wayback Studio time machine and you're going to go back and find young Eric, uh, not yet Mixer Man, and uh, tap yourself on the shoulder. You turn around and say, what are you doing here, dude? And you say, I've come back to give you this single most important bit of advice. Here's the one thing you need to know to be a rock star of the recording studio yourself one day. Um, what, what advice would you go back and give yourself? Well, I'd give two pieces of advice. Based on what you just said now, I would say focus on the songs. Don't focus on anything but the songs. Forget about everything else. And uh, if I was to actually give myself advice now, I would say, go back now and give myself advice. I would say, own your product, mm -hmm. whatever you do throughout your course of this career that you're about to embark on, own your product. So whereas my career was to help others create their product, I would do it differently this time. And I would make sure that I own the product, any product that I do. Well, uh, I think that's good advice, and I think you're doing that now. And Rockstars, I encourage you to go own some of um, Eric's, uh, a.k.a. Mixer Man's product, and pick up The Musician's Survival Guide to a Killer Record um, and any of the books that you've written, because I think you'll be happy you did. Um, and also, are they on Audible or any kind of audio book in case people are, say, like, I'm not so much a reader, but I like to listen? Um. My two satires I did audible books on. I did not on the on the three Zen books, and I have not yet on Musician Survival Guide. But you can get Siri to read it to you if you yeah, like. That's what I've been I hear doing she's got a sexy gym. voice. <laughs> Here's the tip, rock stars. Uh, if you're um, reading on Kindle on your iPhone, you take your two fingers and you swipe down gently from the top, and Siri will just start reading the page to you. Let me just say this: you can get if you're in Europe. Um, it can get very, or or anywhere else in the world. Actually, if you're anywhere but the U.S. and Canada, you may want to investigate just purchasing it straight off of the Indiegogo site, which is still open. The original campaign that I did to pre-sell the book so that I could take four months to write it. Uh, if you go there, you can purchase the book for $25 straight up. You don't pay shipping, you don't pay taxes, and it'll get there. But, you know, like I had someone from Bosnia-Herzegovina uh, ask me about this. If he bought the book off of Amazon, it'd probably cost him $30 or $40. Hmm. So it, because of the way this is all set up and the way Amazon works with authors, I can offer it this way. So I can send them what's called an author's copy. So if you're in Europe, buy it that way. If you're not, uh, you can go to Amazon and get it on Amazon. Amazon has already discounted it off the $25 price. Um, and I set the Kindle price at $9.99 because I want as many people, I don't want 
price to be a reason that you can't get the book. So I think that most people can afford nine ninety nine, uh, and it, you know I don't prefer to read on 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 um, devices, but if you like that or if you're okay with that, then get the Kindle one. Very cool, very cool. And then uh, where can they go find out more about you online? Uh, my website is mixerman.net, and I write blog posts. Um, I wouldn't say regularly, but fairly regularly. And so if you're the kind of person that uses an RSS feed, you can do that, and then you'll be alerted anytime I put something up. And uh, my YouTube channel, if you go on YouTube and you search Mixerman, I will be doing um, videos over the course of the next year, just little short five-minute supplemental uh, survival guide supplementals, I'm calling them. Nice. And um, I'm just getting the room set up for it now. I got my, I got my light system, and I, I got the camera, and so... Uh, I'll just come in here every week and, and film one of those and put it up on YouTube. And I think people will find them very useful and give them some good tips. Awesome. Well, um, thank you, Eric, for, so much for joining us on Recording Studio Rockstars. It's, it's a super honor to meet you in person, or at least virtually, and, uh, and have you on the show. And I look forward to meeting you in person when I'm in Asheville at, at some point soon. And also, a big thank you to Ryan Earnhardt for uh, making a connection for us, too. Right. Um, Ryan rocks. Love Rye. Um, cool, man. Well, thanks very much. And uh, Rockstar's a reminder that I'll have links to all the stuff we're talking about in the show notes. Just go, go through on your mobile device or go to rsrockstars.com and you'll find the blog post there and, it'll, and you can click through as well to just take you right to uh, Eric's website or to um, the Amazon links and that kind of stuff. Thanks, Rockstar's. Dude, a pleasure, man. Um, I'm going to let you go and thanks so much for joining us. All right, Liz. Appreciate it, man. All right, man. Cheers. All right. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, please leave a rating and review on iTunes to help reach more people. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to recordingstudiorockstars.com slash review for an easy explanation. And if you want more free content, all you have to do is text R.S. Rockstars to 33444. Again, that's R.S. Rockstars to 33444. And I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, and podcast updates. And I'll let you know about any upcoming giveaway offers, all totally free. Thanks for listening. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music. Music.